Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. As both a U.S. citizen and a baptized Catholic, I like NATO. Uh, NATO's been in the news recently because of Ukraine and now because of Finland and Sweden joining it. I like NATO. It's just a prudential judgment, I know, and I know many other Catholics in good faith could and would disagree with me. But I like NATO because its member nations prize a democratic way of life, you know, government of, by, and for the people. All the member nations of NATO, with the exception of Turkey, have roots in Christian civilization and prize civil liberties like freedom of speech, religion, association, and press. That's my short answer for why I like NATO. Let me give you unfold something a little more substantial. NATO, first of all, N-A-T-O, is an acronym. It's for North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This is a military alliance that consists right now of 30 member states, 28 European states, the United States, and Canada. And soon, Finland and Sweden will be accepted as the 31st and 32nd members of NATO. NATO is about collective security. An attack on a NATO member is an attack on all members. So all for one, one for all. And while NATO is not quite the three musketeers, member nations do pledge to defend each other against attacks by third parties. In 1949, the Truman administration formed NATO with 12 original members, and they agreed to protect Europe from the imperial ambitions of the Soviet Union and the expansion of global communism. It worked. NATO helped defeat communism without open warfare between the United States and the Soviet Union. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact nations like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, the Czech Republic, Slovakia were welcomed into NATO. And this kind of expanded NATO 2.0 began conducting counterterrorism and anti-piracy campaigns outside of Europe. So I like NATO. I like NATO because whenever you can get 30 independent democratic nations to cooperate on security matters over a period of 70, roughly 75 years, you've got something special. If NATO didn't already exist... Some people would dismiss the notion as utopian, but it does exist and has stabilized Europe for nearly 75 years. Because of that stability, it's easy to forget that the world we inhabit is really very unstable. In human history, peace is the exception. War is the norm. So last night, I located a list of U.S. military actions throughout our history. It's provided by the Congressional Research Service. And when I printed the list out without charts, without maps, without long explanations, it came to over 50 pages of normal newspaper font, type font. Okay, consider our first 25 years as the United States of America. The War for Independence, okay, we all know that. Then we had the Cherokee-American Wars, and then came the Northwest Indian War. And then Shays' Rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Quasi War, Fry's Rebellion, eight wars in roughly 25 years. If you jump into the 19th century, uh, I'll just went to the 1840s, right? In 1840, our naval forces landed on the Fiji Islands to punish natives who had attacked a U.S. exploring expedition. In 1841, our naval forces avenged the murder of a U.S. seaman in the McCain and uh, Gilbert Islands Pacific War. That same year, a naval party landed and burned towns after the murder of another American seaman. In 1843, the USS St. Louis landed in China after a clash between Americans and Chinese in Canton. Now, 
1844, President Tyler deploys U.S. troops to protect Texas against Mexico. And in 1846, we have the full-blown Mexican-American War. By 1849, though, we're using the Navy to liberate an American who had been seized by Austrian officials in Smyrna, Turkey. Just about every year, guaranteed military action and loss of life. Now, I could go on and on like this, but I won't, uh, because it gets a little tedious after a while. But since our Declaration of Independence 246 years ago, we have had only 15 years of peace. We've had big wars and small wars, and uh, we've been on the open seas, we've been in small rivers, we're sandy hills, dense trees, we've been high in the sky, and we've done it all. So, as Christians... We pray for peace, but Christian realism tells us we ought to be prepared for war. You know, we long for the Prince of Peace. We long for his kingdom. We long for his reign to be fulfilled on the earth. But the kings of the earth will not live together in peace and harmony until the Prince of Peace returns to accept the gifts presented by the surrendered kings of the earth. Now, we bear witness to that day when we do our best to eliminate injustice and create conditions that make war unnecessary, right? Uh, So we don't just sit on our hands. We are actually trying to resolve the conditions that make for war. In 1965, Pope St. Paul VI addressed the United Nations in a speech titled, No More War. The New York Times reported that it shook the city, at least for a few moments, out of its cynicism. And the Times went on, quote, It was not that he said anything new, but simply that he said a lot of old fundamental things that have been overwhelmed for so long that they sounded new again, end quote. So after so much talk of war, this is 1965, remember, uh, Vietnam is escalating. Um, The Pope's simple call for peace, the Times wrote, quote, was almost startling. Now, the The Pope did not prevent the escalation of the Vietnam War. But he did remind us that God's norm was peace, even if the human norm was war. And I never tire of repeating St. John Paul II's words, war is always a failure of humanity. So, because wars will inevitably come, we must be prepared for war. Because the ambition of nations is unlimited, but natural resources are limited, we have to be prepared for war. Because each nation has its own story, its own self-understanding, its own sense of destiny. Because we speak different languages, thanks to the Tower of Babel. And because we have different ethnic and racial roots. And because people actually do financially profit from war. We have to be prepared for war. Peace is always shaky and uncertain. And that's why I like NATO. This is not a safe world. Political officials try to make us feel safe. I mean, St. Paul, Jeremiah, and Patrick Henry pointed out in their day that they call peace, peace when there is no peace. And so, you know, Christian realism says, we know we're walking in the shadow of death, the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't mean we should live in a state of fear or in a state of panic. I mean, human beings, violent moms, terrorists, cannot harm us beyond God's gracious will for our lives. You know, the psalmist put it this way, He said, the Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So our trust is in God. It's not in human strength. It's not in what the scriptures call the arm of the flesh. 
But that doesn't mean we should be unprepared for war. It's prudent to have military strength. We shouldn't despise it, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. As St. Paul said, we must not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Um, At the same time, we should not think less of ourselves than we ought either. So it's worth evaluating the strength that NATO has to offer. Even before the addition of Finland and Sweden, the 30 members of NATO produce more than 50% of the world's gross domestic product. 200 nations in the world, and these 30 produce 50% of the world's gross domestic product. Uh, NATO has over 3 million troops on duty, operating massive uh, combined naval fleets and air forces, and together spend over $1 trillion on defense. The collective European defense budget is the second largest in the world, only behind the United States. And it's ahead of China's and Russia's combined. So our membership in NATO gives us uh, other advantages, too. Uh, we have with partner nations, we can help in cyber warfare. We can uh, have innovations on cybersecurity. And NATO gives us more eyes and ears for intelligence gathering. Now, in that unstable world that I described, the United States is still the unquestioned leader of the democratic West. We are not the universal nation. Let's not make any uh, bones about this. There is no universal nation except the kingdom of God. I mean, the Christian message offers a universal, universal vision of the life for human beings who long for communion with God and one another. But ultimately, that unity is not going to be built on the uh, force of arms, right? In a fallen world, though, where we must be pre- prepared to protect the innocent, there's no shame in acknowledging the obvious, and that is that the U.S. leads the democratic West militarily and economically. Well, why do we need an alliance then? Because going it alone in such a world is dangerous, no matter how big you are. When the other big players combine and create alliances to checkmate us, it helps to have friends. When disputes arise, as they certainly will, it helps to have friends who agree with our concerns and our grievances and can give us expanded moral support through diplomatic means. Our friends can also challenge us and sometimes force us to recognize that our objectives have become short-sighted or counterproductive or self-defeating. When we have friends, we demonstrate that we're not merely powerful, but that we're also cooperative and rational. There is a moral advantage uh, to being in an alliance with independent free nations who are not just vassal states or puppet nations like we saw with the Soviet Union. Those are some of the reasons why the expansion of NATO, I think, is a good thing. Because in a world in which China and Russia have decided to scratch each other's back, Western-style democracies need to stand with each other. China and Russia have clearly decided to go a different route than our Western-style democracies. Remember, China, Iran, North Korea, all refuse to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we shouldn't uh, forget the sad truth that nations are competitive, and they will compete to control and influence the international order. Some nation or coalition of nations will set the pace for the international order. They'll exercise influence uh, toward adopting and legitimating certain values. The democratic West cherishes the civil liberties of freedom of religion, the press, association, and freedom of speech. Intellectual historians have pointed out that the emphasis on the dignity of the individual 
and the idea of unalienable rights is deeply embedded in our culture and is a fruit of Christian civilization. China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, they don't value the individual in the same way. And China, in particular, is working hard to become an international leader with the same influence as the United States. The truth is, the biggest kid on the block gets into fewer fights. It's that basic. And in a world in which fighting is almost constant, NATO makes U.S. military and moral advantage that much greater. I think that makes for a more peaceful world and a world that protects fundamental human rights. Those rights are not the fundamental values of China, but they are the fundamental values of the NATO nations.